You're listening to Money Talks. Coming up, I've got a great Goofy Award for you. If this one doesn't make you shake your head, I don't know what would. But we're starting off with today's quote of the week. And it's courtesy of U2 frontman high-profile activist Bono, who, during the United Nations Private Sector Forum, stated in quotes, I'm late to realizing that it's the private sector, it's commerce that's going to take the majority of people out of extreme poverty. And as an activist, I almost found that hard to say. End of quote. Well, he's right on both counts. He's very late to recognize that. And yes, the evidence is overwhelming that business in a capitalist system founded on individual freedom has been by far the most effective way to raise people from poverty. But sadly, the anti-capitalist brigade couldn't care less. One more time from Bono. I'm late to realize that it's the private sector, it's commerce that's going to take the majority of people out of extreme poverty. And as an activist, I almost found that hard to say. End of quote. Well, good for him for understanding that. Late, yes, but absolutely better late than never. Very uh, very pleased to welcome back to the show the CEO of Garibaldi Capital Investments, Brent Holiday. Garibaldi Capital spends their time looking for opportunities in the tech field, helping finance the newer companies that they see with uh, tremendous potential. Brent, thanks for finding time on the weekend for us. Thanks for having me, Michael. Let's start with just what's going on in the tech world. Very, you know, let's go fairly quickly here. But, you know, what are some of the interesting things you're seeing happening right now? Because I could have talked to you last week and it could be a different list. <laughs> yeah, it does move very quickly. Um, I think, you know, overall, just at the, from, a, from a commercial perspective, tech's doing pretty well. Um, uh, Prem Watsa, you know, made a comment last week that tech valuations had a, you know, we're going to keep falling. Um, and, you know, with all due respect to Prem, um, uh, you know, him commenting on tech is like me commenting on REITs. But uh, he, he may be, in fact, be uh, uh, talking about a few cases like LinkedIn and Twitter. The reality is that tech is still robust. The global IT spending is growing at 5% this year. So there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, um, good news coming out of the tech side of the economy. And you see that in the early stage uh, as companies are still getting financed. Uh, and um, exiting at, at pretty nice valuations, um, but what I see out there on the on the um, generally in terms of things trends that people want uh, and investors are looking for, it's Internet of Things still very hot space. Um, uh, FinTech uh, is is certainly a dominant uh, uh, conversation right now, um, and I think that investors when they're smart they may <clears throat> they try and run counter to where uh, the herd is going. So I see actually a lot of investment uh, back on clean tech uh, and advanced energy right now. And, and, and that's the smart investors saying, well, while oil is at 30 to 40 bucks a barrel and it's not attractive, I'm going to get in at good valuations and start investing in some of this technology. Well, let's elaborate a little bit on that. I, I know it's an expression that people have heard for the last you know, few years, Internet of Things. Maybe a, a quick definition. What, what are we looking at? What that means basically is small uh, cheaper radios going into things that no, you don't normally think of as communicating. So obviously a phone and a computer have, uh, you know, network radios in them that can connect to the Internet. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're talking now about your car. We're talking about your fridge. Uh, we're talking about your, your clothing. We're talking about all sorts of uh, 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 because these radios are getting so cheap and so small and, and the power consumption is so little. It's the ability of all of these devices anywhere to connect to the Internet. So billions and billions and billions of devices can talk, uh, um, you know, and, and, and I guess one of the examples that we went through in, 
in uh, in BC was the smart meter uh, as an example. So you know that electrical uh, uh, electricity counter on the side of your house now is part of the Internet of Things because it's communicating constantly, uh, you know, with BC Hydro. Uh, the one I love is the, the the fridge that can tell me I've run out of milk. You know that kind of <laughs> stuff. I'm at the store and I can get instructions from my yeah. frigid air. One really interesting uh, is a company called ThoughtWire in Toronto that that developed uh, an enabling platform for Internet of Things, and it made the uh, Credit Valley Hospital, they call it the most advanced hospital in the world. Because now what they've done is is they've they've put – They've made all the devices in the hospital and all the, the, the lights and heat and everything else connected in one. But the real practical application of that is when a doctor enters the hospital, their phone switches over to become effectively a pager. Uh, and that means that whenever, whoever the closest, most uh, uh, qualified person to an emergency, say, on the hospital grounds, is notified, not the person that's on call through a pager. So it's really interesting applications of Internet of Things that we're going to see going forward. That's that's what I love about. It. I mean, there's obviously we're talking investments too, but I, I mean, it, it, I, I just what we're doing right now, generally, I see Brent is that we sort of become aware of these things. Like we're kind of getting aware of self-driving cars. I think most people will have heard mm-hmm. of dr- self-driving cars. Certainly, anyone who's listened to this show has been hearing, you know, ad nauseum about them for three years. What we haven't been able to do it seems in our public discussions is see where that impacts things. For example, we have a big debate right now about Uber, as you know, well, Mm -hmm. heck, forget Uber. We're going to have robotic taxis coming. We're going to get robotic delivery of things coming. Uh, I was just talking earlier on an interview uh, that I was getting interviewed. We talk minimum wage and I'll tell you the minimum wage advocates absolutely hate me for saying this because I'm saying (laughs) they're missing the boat. You know, um, what is it? Domino's Pizza just announced uh, their own robotic delivery system. McDonald's is working on it. We already know what self-ordering kiosks look like. I mean, it's changing things, and we don't seem to be able to adapt that in the way you just did. Like, what reminded me is when you're talking about being able to page the most qualified doctor instantly. Yeah. This is going to change. This is our biggest hope for healthcare, I think. Self-driving yeah. cars are going to save a fortune in terms of accidents, and that, of course, will save a ton of money for the healthcare system. But it's this kind of thing with efficiency that I think is the biggest hope for sustainability in healthcare. Right. And you hear about all this investment into things like Internet of Things and, and, and the practical use of it at the other end is, is hard. You can invest in a company like Zero Wireless who, who do the machine-to-machine communications. They're that communications layer. But, it, you know, it's understanding what the applications are at the end that really helps. And so those are great examples. Of course, uh, their um, devices are going to be in some of those self-driving cars. you got all the sensors and everything else that need to be in there. Um, I heard uh, uh, recently at a conference uh, the guy stood up talking about the sharing economy for cars and the self-driving cars, and he said, um, he said, 25% of kids born today will ever get driver li- driver's licenses in their in their lifetime. Uh, that was his quote. He said, because you know, you're, if they're going to live in urban centers, uh, they won't need it because they'll get yeah. the self-driving cars and the and the and the, and the, uh, uh, the you know the ride sharing and everything else. So, really fascinating stuff and how it's going to change our lives. And fintech is going to change our lives too, Michael. With yeah, again, elaborate on that a little bit for us, please. So financial technologies are changing fast, and it's the the potential for these financial technologies to disrupt the 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 banks, the the status quo. Um, so uh, payment technology is changing. Everybody's getting familiar now with Apple Pay and Google Pay that are out there, but and Square. 
Um, uh, but the, you know, there are going to be a variety of different ways that we can pay for our goods um, that are going to be simpler for the merchant, simpler for the consumer. Um, but of course, you know, you've got to have it, it's got to be highly secure, you can't have any fraud, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of security and, and really hard technology that's behind all of that. It certainly isn't easy. Um, and then um, you've got companies that are popping up that do lending. Um, uh, Group Lend, which I think renamed itself Grow in, in Vancouver. Um, you've got a, 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 um, a bunch of these uh, financial services companies that because they're using the power of mobile devices and uh, appeal more to millennials, um, uh, you know, who don't who don't do things the same way that you and I like. They never understood what standing in a lineup at a bank ever meant. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so, so that they're they're taking advantage of what you know the millennials want, and that they all have these powerful devices in their hand, and they're changing the way uh, lending's going to happen and banking's going to happen. So, um, really interesting things happening in financial technology that are disrupting all the banks. By the way, are hiring technology leaders as fast as they can to try and not lose, uh, you know, what they have. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, there's billions and billions of dollars at stake, that's for sure. Well, I just sort of smile when I hear that. I mean, I couldn't agree more with you, by the way. Very familiar with that side of the things. Uh, but it's incredible how slow reacting. I deal with a lot of companies, and I get companies coming to me. And the first thing I say is you never see an opportunity in the change. That's what. That's the problem. They are always long-term, slow reactive. I mean, goodness gracious, I'm, I'm working in a medium, you know, uh, when we talk about the media in general. The mainstream media, ha, media had such an advantage, and yet they squandered it because they never saw the opportunity. Okay. Uh, it's just, it's quite something. Uh, let me, let's go a little bit to the clean tech side. Uh, to, so, again, uh, we sort of get, you know, we all hear green environmental stuff, but maybe some specifics. So um, uh, in, in energy technology, I think it's in its darkest days right now. So, you know, rather than just hide under your desk, I think what a lot of um, uh, companies are doing is, 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 you know, going back to the lab, so to speak, and innovating. So, um, you know, there's a lot of companies around uh, Vancouver that, uh, you know, um, uh, have raised money and have built uh, really interesting, um, uh, you know, technologies um, that, you know, whether it's in power uh, or in um, – uh, uh, materials, and I'll give you an example. Coolidge, uh, Coolidge is a company that made uh, had all the patents on LED lighting, really, really um, low power, but uh, uh, LED lighting. But it looks like paper and feels like paper. You can fold it, you can twist it, you can actually cut it <laughs> in panels. And what happens is that's completely now they're launching, they're commercializing now, and it's changing the way architects and builders think about space and how to light space. Because you don't need a light fixture now. You can make a whole wall be light. You can make the whole ceiling be light. You can put it behind glass and do amazing things. And it's much lower power. The lights last for, you know, 10 to 15 years. So you don't have to change the bulbs. Uh, and, and so it's a really interesting energy technology play. It started out by saying we've got a more cost-effective way to light a room. And now it's become, uh, you know, a company that is in high demand uh, and making uh, partnerships around the world and selling, uh, you know, a lot of these uh, uh, cool edge, uh, lighting, you know, tiles, they call them. Yeah. What a fascinating thing. Brent holiday is CEO Garibaldi capital investments. This is what he does. He seeks out this kind of a opportunity and he's got a list. It's called the Canadian narwhal list. I'll get him to elaborate where the name came from. And also we'll get more on the investing side of things with Brent right after the break on the money talks network.
Coming up, I've got a great shocking stat. You know what? We all got in the wrong business. Wait till you hear what these people get paid and what they do for a living. But right now, Brent Holiday is with me, CEO Garibaldi Capital Investments. Brent, you've got, you know, you're very well known for having what you call the Canadian narwhal list. I know what a narwhal is. Those are those whales that look like unicorns married them. But that's right. Where, that's right. Where did you come up with this? What, what's, what, what so, criterion do you use to select what makes this list? Well, uh, first of all, um, uh, the narwhal came because uh, they were calling technology companies in the United States that sort of uh, born after the dot-com crash, uh, they were calling them unicorns when they hit a billion dollars in valuation. Oh, and in fact, sure. the Wall yeah. Street Journal tracked the unicorn list. So uh, what I just said, look, we, we actually have a, uh, a real beast. Um, and uh, uh, it, you know, it ha- it, it's, a, it's not a magical horned animal. It actually exists and it's Canadian. So um, uh, I decided to sort of call out the Canadian unicorns, if you will, and rename them narwhals. Uh, and uh, so, so the criteria to make the list is um, technology companies, you know, born since the dot-com crash, so over the last, you know, 15 years that have reached a billion Canadian in value, <laughs> which might, is only a little less than a billion American these days. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, some of the, it's, it's interesting, three of the five that have reached that status are uh, from Vancouver. Uh, Avigilon, uh, which is a public company that uh, does, um uh, uh, really high definition security, uh, cameras. Um, and, and they have reached a billion twice. They're, they've sort of fallen back since. Another one is Hootsuite that everybody's pretty familiar with. Um, uh, even though, uh, you know, recently Fidelity was in the news saying that they'd written down the value of Hootsuite. Um, uh, it did cross a billion there briefly. Uh, and another one is Slack. And Slack is actually born in San Francisco, but, but Stuart Butterfield, who's from Vancouver, is growing Slack. Uh, in uh, Yale Town, they've got a whole building, and I think he's up to about 200 people now. So the majority of the people uh, at Slack are actually in Vancouver. So I claimed um, he, uh, Slack as a narwhal. Aileen Lee, who started the unicorn list, has claimed him as well. So we've got one that's kind of a dual citizen, if you will. Yeah, what, what do they do for a living? So Slack is all about messaging. It's a funny story. Stuart Butterfield has started two companies, and they've become completely different companies. Uh, the first company he started in gaming um, uh, and while he was doing the game, he tried to figure out how people could share images better, and he ended up creating Flickr, which sold to Yahoo. Um, this time around, he started a gaming company, again, now with much more fanfare and a lot more money. It failed, but in it, he had created a messaging platform that might replace email for all internal communications. How frustrating is it when you, um, your email inbox fills up with a whole bunch of people inside the office chattering, um, you know, sending things to you and and, and you know, carbon copying you, et cetera. Slack is all about moving that into a new medium. It's an application that sits in your desktop, and it's all about, uh, you know, messaging internally, sharing files, uh, collaborating on work without using email. And I find that my email clutter has gone way down because we do all of our internal chatting uh, on Slack. And Slack is, I mean, it's got millions and millions of users. I think he's raising money at a $4 billion valuation uh, is what I heard recently. When you look at that, we only have about three minutes left, so this is a bit superficial on my part, but uh, you are looking at companies like this all the time. I mean, or, or, or potential, that's what you're looking for, is potential yeah. to move on. Yeah. Give us two or three things that you look for. I mean, is it all about the management? Because you just alluded to uh, this wasn't the first go-round uh, right. with the uh, originator of Slack. So when you're at the very early stage, if you're, um, uh, if you're investing friends and family on an idea, 
uh, angel investing, they call it, uh, well before their, you know, their, their growth uh, stage, you've got to, first of all, be prepared to lose that money. It's high-risk money. At that stage, it is all about the people. Forget the idea. Because often these companies actually pivot and they do something different, like Stuart. So um, I like to invest at that stage and try and figure out if I'm investing in the smartest guys in the room. And I'm, I use guys euphemistically, by the way. Uh, it includes both genders. You need to make sure that you've got really smart people um, who will figure it out. Now, when you get to a little bit later stage, and these their commercial stage where I'm helping these companies get funded uh, or helping them with M&A or, or whatever it is, that that, that the, 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 the product market fit becomes extremely important. Um, not that they just have a... Uh, uh, a nice to have. It's that they've got something that is is really really solving a key pain in business, um, and uh, uh, you know people are going to buy it because it's going to solve that pain. So you look at management, you look at the, the the product market fit, and you look at how big is the market. How you know are they solving a problem that's only going to be useful to you know people on Vancouver Island, or are they solving a problem that's global? And if it's global, then you've got a much bigger, uh, you know, chance that this company can succeed. Uh, and so those are the things that we always look for in these companies. But, you know, really still heavily weighted towards management. Have they done it before? Have they, have they got what it takes to be an entrepreneur, which is a, you know, little dash of craziness, to be honest, <laughs> and, uh, and, and certainly a, a ton of, uh, you know, drive. They really have to be driven. Yeah. No, it's absolutely fascinating, and I think uh, we're still not aware uh, how big this industry is within, uh, for example, you're talking about some of the huge successes in Vancouver, and mm-hmm. uh, I, God, I'm always on about does our school system recognize that this is the future in a way that is preparing our students? That's another topic for another time, but uh, mm-hmm. Brent, I want to thank you so much. Absolutely fascinating as usual. Thank you, Michael. Great stuff. Brent Holiday is the right. CEO of Garibaldi Capital Investments. As I say, uh, this is something that uh, there's nothing I spend more time on. Brent does it for a living. I read about uh, the kind of things that Brent does and get a great opportunity, and it's a real privilege to be able to talk to people like Brent. But come on, if you don't know about this stuff, you just aren't up to date on what's going on. So, uh, again, really key. Stay with us, though. I've got a great Goofy Award for you. If this does not get you shaking your head, I do not know what would. Aussie Jurek, were there changes in the federal budget to real estate? And Victor Adair, what trends are he watching? What trends are he playing in the investment markets? All of that on Money Talks Network. Coming up, Victor Dare, live from the trading desk. And have there been any changes to real estate out of the federal budget? Aussie Jurek will answer the question. But first, it's time for my shocking stat of the week. We're going to go from investing to gambling. Have a little fun with this. But before I get to the stat itself, let me ask you a couple of quick questions. Are you ready? When it comes to the most money bet, which attracts the most? Is it the Super Bowl? or the NCAA basketball tournament, right? Which sporting event attracts the most money in terms of betting, the Super Bowl or the NCAA basketball tournament? Well, the NCAA March Madness just kills it. Estimated 9.2 billion U.S. will be bet on the NCAA March Madness. And by the way, 7 billion of that's illegal. Two times the amount they estimate for Super Bowl betting. Okay, how about this one? Because, by the way, if you're not a basketball fan, uh, we're getting into the Elite Eight 
tomorrow. You'll be a lot of basketball on television tomorrow, and of course you lead to the national championship with the uh, Final Four and then the winner. How about this one? The total number of people, which one is more? The total number of people who voted in the U.S. primaries this year, both Democrat, Republican, you know, all the excitement, Donald Trump, that kind of stuff, or the number of people who filled out an NCAA tournament bracket. Well, I bet you're guessing it's right now. It's the March Madness. Think about this. 35 million people have voted in U.S. primaries so far. 40 million people filled out tournament brackets, but some of them did more than one. They estimate that 70 million tournament brackets were filled out. But 40 million people, so significantly more, are interested in March Madness than they are in the U.S. primaries. Okay, so let's get to the shocking stat part of this. Of course, you know that other than scholarships, the athletes don't get paid. Not supposed to, anyways. So who are the big winners? Well, my shocking stat talks about the coaches. Did I ever get into the wrong profession? You probably did, too. I think you'll understand why they call it March Madness, too. Kentucky's John Calipari, the highest paid, $6.36 million U.S. a year. Now, you take the number of wins that Kentucky's had. It's got a great program there. He gets paid $244,615 per win. Last night, you saw Duke get crushed. Uh, coach K, very famous coach there. He's also the dream team coach. He gets paid just over $6 million a year. And you take the number of wins that Duke's had, that works out to $262,608 per win. I chose another couple just to give you an example. Uh, Spokane, Washington, down uh, obviously in Washington State. They played last night also. They lost. And I thought they looked poorly coached, by the way. They played Syracuse. I'd, I thought they were absolutely confused by Syracuse's 2-3 zone. They didn't know how to break the press at the end of the game, and hence they lost it. Well, Gonzaga's Mark Few gets paid $1.25 million. Maybe he's underpaid. Uh, $48,077 per win. And finally, Michigan State's Tom Izzo, $4 million. He gets $137,130 per win. All I know is, yes, I'm jealous. I got into the wrong profession in a dramatic way because I love basketball. I've coached a lot of basketball, and I, I never even made a dollar doing it. So there you go. That's the March Madness numbers. I'll take a break. I'll come back. Did the federal government change anything in real estate? I'll ask Ozzy Jurek on the Money Talks Network. Coming up, I've got a goofy award, as I said earlier. I'll tell you, if you don't shake your head at this one, you must be in a neck brace. Right now, though, I go with Ozzy Jurek, the federal budget, real estate, all of that. You can find Ozzy at Jurek.com. And thank goodness we can find him here on Money Talks, because uh, what is it, Ozzy? Next week, you're going to be busy with the Land Rush Conference. Ozzy, are you with me? Hello? Oh, there you go. Oh, I love yeah. that. It's always a crisp beginning to an interview when we're, I'm going hello, you're going hello, and then you've got a German accent. I mean, everything's breaking loose here right now. Well, next week we have our 23rd year of Landrush. Can you believe it? People saying you coined that name for the mad market in Vancouver. No, we've called it Landrush for 23 years. And when I look back, we did some spectacular forecasts over time. Of course we did. I would say that. But think about it. In 2011, we said buy the Canby Corridor. In 2012, we said buy everything on the SkyTrain. 2013, buy where the Chinese and Iranians are buying. Last year, Richmond, Savas, and this year, the best condo markets. And in 2016, well, you're going to come for Landrush next Saturday. 
The other thing you do, though, uh, you got a ton of great speakers there. I know that, Ozzy. But you also will have your list of 100 deals under $100,000, which I kind of like. I always think that's a lot of fun. It's interesting. We have a one couple, she says, they bought, bought a property every year off the list for the last four years. So there you go, right? Isn't that interesting? Lower yeah. mainland are most of them, you know. Yeah, no, it's but of course, I mean, it, it's sort of a ripple effect out from. Uh, you've been on top of the Vancouver market at the World Outlook Conference since 2011, uh, down in Phoenix too, right away there, and that area, not just Phoenix, of course, uh, really had a huge kick from the U.S. dollar, uh, but also uh, good timing on that one. Uh, it's going to be very, be very interesting to hear what you've got to say. I mean, is this a time to buy, or or should you sell into this strength and cash in and go to another market, that kind of stuff? So uh, you, no you've question. got no shortage of things to talk about in the last several years. Uh, no question. And we we'll we'll always have my eight astounding predictions. We also have a top agent from Phoenix coming up. So it's an all-round great conference. Let's talk about the federal budget here, Ozzy. And, uh, you know, first of all, it didn't look like there was a ton that impacted real estate here. No, it's funny. We were watching the Liberals' first budget with sort of some trepidation because there were weeks of hyperbole about fixing the housing crisis and trial balloons from everything, from foreign buyer restrictions or dramatic expansion of affordable rental housing. So we were expecting some bold initiatives, perhaps game-changing legislation, but there were none of that. Again, well, there's what, what 500,000 uh, was in the budget to track where home buyers are coming from. Is that yeah, right? I mean, I mean, I, I, I saved the five hundred thousand. They're coming mainly from China, then the United States, then India and Iran in that order. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and well, we've also got the private firms. I mean, Collier's has done a big report. National Bank this past week, you know, and talk about getting involved after the horse has left the barn. Uh, uh, and I'd also love to see they should assume, and they have to do it with the other two levels of government, I know that, but they'll, it should assume the kind of numbers that they, those other studies have found, and now what do you do that doesn't have more negative repercussions than positive? I mean, it's, it's a tough go with this one. No question. And even on the affordable housing file, which they really talked a lot about, they earmarked $2.3 billion, but that money is divided within 61 cities and $739 million goes to original housing, 200 indirectly repairing senior housing. That leaves a billion three to be shared among 61 cities, so Vancouver gets $2 million. That's about the cost of a house. <laughs> yeah, and that's a great example, though, Ozzy, that these numbers get a little big until you start, you know, you, you do, you break it down and say, wait a second. That's not much at all, you know, when you've got $1.3 billion over two years, you know, for 61 cities. And, of course, we do know the price of housing in Toronto, uh, in Vancouver, but also moving fast in Victoria, moving, you know, Calgary still with their decline still is expensive. I mean, in other words, they're not doing much. No, in <laughs> fact, talk about expensive. In Vancouver, it costs an average of 440000 to build a single one-bedroom social housing rental apartment because of mandatory LEED level environmental construction, rent supplements, and so on. So at best, with that $2 million, we could buy, build uh, five more units. That's why, by the way, I laugh when we do all the hand-wringing from politicians about affordable housing, and you look at the component part, depending on what city you live in, but it's a massive add-on to the cost of housing done at the municipal level, uh, especially if you're talking of Vancouver or Toronto, but at the municipal level, and then at the provincial level. I mean, the property purchase tax, yeah, it was adjusted upward, but still, you buy the average house in Vancouver or something, and they're going to find out in Victoria if you're buying real estate over there. My goodness, that's a steep tax. Yeah, it's huge. You know, and In fact, we do have a spotlight on Victoria next week where we have an ace uh, developer slash realtor, Rick Hogan, uh, make a presentation because Victoria is burning higher as well. 
But mm-hmm. it's been on the budget side. We really haven't seen much. I mean, the, the Conservative government had um, a proposal to create a tax exemption that would allow Canadians to avoid capital gain tax from selling real estate. If they donated the proceeds, they scrapped that. There was no mentioning, by the way, of the RSP, which, which was a budget promise that there would be some uh, unique uh, things that we could do with our RSP. And in terms of tightening mortgage lending, there is a nice sentence here, closely monitor vulnerabilities related to housing. <laughs> I want to so, come back very quickly to one more there that you just talked about, uh, that they're scrapping uh, the previous government, the you know, conservative government um, had a tax exemption that allows the Canadian to avoid capital gains if they sold the real estate, if they donated the proceeds to a registered charity. I have no idea why they canceled that. Yeah. Obviously, I'm someone who goes out and fundraises, so I, I don't like that at all. No, and it doesn't make sense. I mean, how much money are we saving with? How many people are going to do that? And if they did, why should they be punished on top of it? It just doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't. I thought that was one of the better things that the Conservative government had done. Uh, Just, I'm shaking my head at that one. Give me the hot property. We got a good one this uh, this week. I think it's a Chilcotin Ranch, 142 acres for 549,000. And this, uh, all the buildings on it are eight, eight years old or less. Workshop, barn beautiful home, Hayshed. It's that classic uh, um, rolling hills in the Chilcotin with a meandering creek around it. It's 549000 the price of a one-bedroom suite in Vancouver. <laughs> there, there you go, 142 acres. Wow. Ozzy, I'll be dreaming about that this weekend. I want to thank you for taking the time. And a reminder, if you want more information on the Land Rush uh, Conference, hey, it's easy. Just go to J-U-R-O-C-K-Jurich.com right there. You can sign up and go to the Land Rush this year. Uh, April 2nd, isn't it, Ozzy? It's April 2nd, and until Monday night, you can buy two tickets for the price of 97 bucks. A bargain. There you go. Especially if you're interested in real estate, don't spend your money without going and get more education. I'll take a break. I'll come back. Hey, I've got Victor Adair live from the trading desk. Plus, I got the head shaking goofy this week. Coming up, I got a goofy award, but let's go live to the trading desk. Victor Adair awaits me there. Victor, I mean, the big theme that we've been talking about, uh, you know, was sort of the strong U.S. dollar, weak Canadian dollar, weak oil prices, other commodities, and that trend had been taking a rest. We had been correcting upward. The Canadian went from 68 nearly to 78 cents. We watched, you know, oil go way up, all of that stuff. So I still think the key is to know where we're at on those trends. Uh, the, you're right, Mike. We had a very strong uh, U.S. dollar, very weak <clears throat> commodity market until January and February of this year. As a matter of fact, it was just over a month ago, February the 11th, we had crude oil at $26. That was a 13-year low. And here we are just over a month later, crude had rallied to a high of $42. It's a gain of 60%. So to, to cut to the chase, my thinking is, that the commodities got oversold, like the Canadian dollar got oversold. They've had a rally, a corrective rally, and that is ending or it's over, and we'll go back to a stronger U.S. dollar, weaker commodity prices. That's how I'm positioning in the market for my short-term trading account. So you think that sort of corrective phase, meaning that counter to the main trend is over. Like, uh, where are you with the, let me just ask specifically, Vic, where are you like with the Canadian dollar? Where are you with uh, uh, gold? Where are you with oil? Sure. Uh, the, the trades that I have on, I'm short of Canada, short the Japanese yen, short gold. And this week, I put on some initial short positions in WTI crude oil and in the U.S. stock market. 
One of the things I'm always really interested in the market is how there are relationships between different markets. I mean, sometimes it's sort of obvious to our minds. You know, you say if the U.S. dollar is strong, then gold is weak and vice versa. But I noticed that when WTI made a bottom on the 11th of February and turned higher, a whole lot of markets made a turn. The, the Canadian dollar obviously kind of tied to the hip with the WTI, but also the stock market, credit markets reversed. It's just this, this interesting thing about how a relationship will build, and then, of course, you know, it, it, it'll change. And one of the key ones I'm watching right there is that for some time now, let's go back several months, we've seen when the U.S. stock market is weak, then the Japanese yen is strong. I can think of that as capital from Japan that's been invested in stock markets outside going back to Japan. But here's one of the keys I'm looking for going forward, and that is if the relationship between the yen and the stock market starts to break down, in other words, if the stock market is weak and the yen is also weak, I think that might be a sign that the corrective phase, the sideways phase we've been in in the U.S. dollar for months now is going to end, and we'll see the U.S. dollar start a new leg higher for you know, maybe the balance of the year. Yeah, I'm always interested. I, I, as you know, I, 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 you know, I'm simple. I watch the U.S. dollar. I think if I get that right, as you just explained, there's a lot of correlation with other markets. So that's why I find what you're saying now about the yen and the stock market fascinating because on a long-term basis, I don't like the yen. I don't like the euro you know, long-term. Their problems are too great for me. So that'll be a very interesting observation to see. Uh, as you say, it'll be a sign that the U.S. dollar weakness is over. Yeah, Mike, I'd say one final thing here, and the, 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 the trade that I haven't got on yet, and maybe it's because all of the trades I have on already are kind of the same, they're related to mm-hmm. one another, but the, the trade that I'm not, I don't have on yet, and I should have on, I'll look to get it on, is to get short the euro. I think the euro currency relative to the U.S. dollar is going to weaken, and you know, I, I'll just have to find a spot to get that on and try to stick with it. Well, there you go. You got all weekend to think about it. You got a holiday yesterday from your trading. <laughs> Vic, thanks for taking the time, and have a terrific you weekend. Thank you, Mike. Thank my you, thanks you to Vic. Too, my thanks, of course, to uh, Ozzy Jurek. My thanks to Brent Holiday. My thanks to Brent Royette, and also to Michael Levy. Money Talks is brought to you by Solera Club. Solera Club is royalty-based, which means you get paid first. Uh, there's no fees, and it's in that tech sector. For more information, go to soleraclub.com. Time now for this week's Goofy. Uh, the curtailment of free speech on university campuses, is along, with, along with the politically correct extremism, has been well chronicled over the last three years. Sadly, it's a trend that shows no sign of abating, which brings me to this week's Goofy. I have to admit, I started laughing when I first read this in the Daily Mail, but it's far more troubling and sad than laughable. I'm talking about in Atlanta. The president of Emory University is vowing to track down those responsible for writing some controversial words. Well, make that actually a controversial word in chalk on a wall, on a set of stairs, on a sidewalk on campus. Now, the students protested, declared that the word had caused them great pain and invaded their safe space. Feelings were hurt, emotional trauma experienced by this word. Now, the president reacted and is now taking the issue to the campus's Freedom of Expression Committee to see if the university guidelines for civil speech were contravened. Now, here's the thing. What caused the students so much emotional pain and the subsequent uproar? Are you sitting down? Steady yourself. 
the word Trump was written in chalk on the wall, on the sidewalk, and on some stairs. That's it. Just the word Trump. And down goes the late teens, the 20-somethings, in emotional agony. Now, I know it's a sign of old age uh, to shake one's head at the younger generation. So called me Methuselah. But my goodness, are these kids ever a piece of work? And it really does beg a more serious question. I mean, what society, what system, what culture produced this? My goodness, they got apoplectic, but worse, they got emotionally wounded because somebody in chalk wrote the word Trump on the sidewalk or on a wall and on some stairs. No, it was too much for them to bear. Oh, my goodness gracious. That's all the time we have today. I want to invite you to go to moneytalks.net. And please, I hope you listen to the business comment uh, five days a week. It's up there. But you can also re-listen to anything you've heard right now on the show. Go back and also listen to the midweek interview. Plus, there's a great raft of articles there. That's moneytalks.net. In the meantime, I hope you have a terrific long weekend.